Well, it's that time of year again, isn't it? <laughs> of holly and family and tinsel and gift-giving and lights and trees, of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. The world refers to it as Christmas time. And it is uh, the time of television specials, of the hectic pace, then comes the magical day of the 25th, right? When we sit with family and friends and we eat to our heart's content, we exchange gifts, we breathe a sigh of relief all until we open our credit card bill in January. Isn't that the case? But that's what Christmas is about, isn't it? No. Amen. No. No, it's not. You know, as believers in, in, in Christ, as believers in Jesus Christ, we commemorate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul called it the day when the fullness of time came. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Which is an inspiration to remember the true meaning of this, this glorious day. And we know, although our Lord was not born on December 25th, we should reflect on His life and how His life gave us new life, new hope in Jesus Christ. That's the whole meaning. People talk on and all over the time about the the meaning of Christmas. What's the meaning of Christmas? The meaning of Christmas is God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to become a curse for all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the most remarkable moment in the history of creation was when God became a man. That is the most remarkable event in the history of creation that he became a man, that he walked among us, that he humbled himself, that he became obedient, obedient to the point of death, that he lived a perfect life, that he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. He became that perfect sacrifice. And that even when betrayed by friends and condemned to a shameful death, and crucified on a tree, buried in a tomb, rose the third day and was witnessed by over 500 people before ascending to heaven. That through his death and resurrection, the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ has saved countless, countless, countless people from the penalty of sin and has granted them eternal life. And despite this beautiful truth, what does our culture do? It shades the entire truth of that narrative. Shades it. And so what we have instead of truth, we have myth. And instead of meaning, we have no meaning. We have replaced the God, the godliness of the birth of Christ with the materialism and the consumerism of mankind. But believers should allow the knowledge of the Lord 
and the glory of his coming to fill our hearts. That's where we as believers need to anchor ourselves, where we as believers need to be. We need to anchor ourselves in the glory of Christ and look well beyond the superficiality that may be present in the world. As those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and saved by his mercies, may we be the first ones to declare that our Lord is risen, that our Lord is saved, that our Lord reigns. That our Lord reigns. That's the most important thing. And so what I want to do is I want to shift our focus on the birth of Christ a little bit. And I want to look today at one aspect of the birth of Christ, which is the glory of Christ, the glory of Christ. Now, many people often wonder about the true meaning of Christmas, but I submit to you that the true meaning of Christmas is the glory of Christ. It is the glory of Christ. So what I want to do today is embark on a journey through the scriptures. We're going to look at the birth of Christ. We're going to look at where the glory of Christ is revealed at the birth of Christ. And then together, let's take a look at this and let's transform the narrative that we hear. So that during this time of year, that our hearts would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Now, in order to do that, in order to do that, we need to define what we mean by the glory of Christ. I know that it's an expression that has been used often, but I think it's rarely understood. In a theological context, when we talk about the glory of God, or we talk about the glory of Christ, what we are talking about is the beauty of his spirit and the perfection of God's totality, the perfection of his holiness. So when we talk about glory, when you hear the expression, the glory of God, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about giving weight. We're talking about the beauty of who God is. Now this isn't necessarily an outward beauty, although the glory of God has been manifested many times throughout the scripture. But it's about the beauty of God, the internal beauty of God. It's about us valuing Him for who He is. For example, when we talk about giving glory to God, we acknowledge God in His true character. So when we talk about the glory of God, that's what we want. We want God in the fullness of His character. When the Bible uses the term glorifying, when we talk about glorifying God, it is to ascribe weight. In other words, it's to describe weightiness as we recognize the purity, the holiness, the totality of who God is or who Christ is. So when we throw around that term and we say, well, the glory of God, the glory of Christ... This is what we're talking about. We're looking at Christ. We're looking at the totality of Christ, his perfection, his godliness, his holiness, and we're embracing that, and not only embracing that, but we're ascribing to him the honor that he's due. The honor that he's due. The glory of man, for instance. You take a current-day king, you take a current-day president. 
right? And while they may be in office or while they may be on the throne, there is a certain amount of glory that goes to that person. But the glory of man always fades. It always fades away. First Peter tells us that. But the glory of God never does. God is intrinsically glorious. And as a result of being glorious, he deserves all of the honor, all of the praise, all of the glory. It is due him. It's not a favor to render it. It is due him. He is deserving of that. And many times the scriptures speak of the manifested glory of God. What's a good example? Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. When Isaiah walks into the temple and he sees the Lord and he says the train of his robe fills the temple and he sees the angels flying back and forth crying, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is to come, right? And they're, they're flying back and forth and he sees these creatures and smoke is rising and it's thundering and it's shaking in there, right? And Isaiah says, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am a man undone, meaning... Woe is me, I'm broken apart because I have seen the holiness of God and I'm doomed. That was one instance where the manifested glory of God was seen on earth. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, the glory of God is revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. The glory of God is revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ. We know from John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. He came down and He, he tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. The word of God goes on to say that Jesus came as a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory, and particularly the glory of God's people Israel. The miracles that Jesus did. John says in 2.11, these were signs through which he revealed his glory. So the miracles weren't just a trick that he did, and it wasn't supposedly to super impress anybody, nor was it to prove anything to anyone. The signs and the miracles that Christ performed were to demonstrate, to manifest his glory. Who is this one that gives sight to the blind? Who is this one that causes the cripple to walk. Who is this one who can walk on water? Who is this one that could shout to the storm, be still? Amen. And even the winds and the waves obey him. All designed so that the glory of Christ would be made manifest. And the glory of Christ, although it was in Christ, was veiled somewhat, yet through his work, through his teaching, through his sacrifice, through his death, and through his resurrection, 
we have seen and we have beheld the glory of Christ. And we know this. He promises to return one day. Amen. We know this. On the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will return. Amen. And the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, although it was restrained during His first coming, at His first coming, the glory of Christ in His second coming, well, let me tell you what it's going to be. Every eye will see Him. They will all behold Him. And the Scripture tells us of a day that's coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. To the glory of God the Father. It won't be that little babe in a manger. That's not going to be it. He is going to come now with full manifested glory. Saint and sinner alike will see him. Saint and sinner alike will fall at their knees. Saint and sinner alike will confess Jesus as Lord. Saint and sinner will all say it for the glory of God. And it's going to be a very different day, a very different day. Yes, what is, what is the birth of Christ all about? It's about the glory of God. It's about the glory of Christ. And I want to take a look at it in, in two facets. Number one, let's take a look at the glory of Christ during the birth of Christ. And let's take a look at the glory of Christ and why it is significant to us even today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be going a lot of uh, bouncing back and forth through the scriptures. Well, we're going to start in Luke chapter 2. And you know the scene, right? Made famous by Charlie Brown Christmas. <laughs> but what is going on here? The shepherds are in the field keeping watch over their flock at night. Right? And suddenly there appears in the evening sky a multitude of heavenly hosts. And the shepherds have a reaction. Look at Luke 2 9. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terribly frightened. I like the way the King James says it. They were sore afraid what happens the sky splits the angel of the lord stands before them and with him comes the glory of god the glory of god the manifest glory of god this is at the announcement of christ's birth the manifest glory of god We've seen that a lot in the Old Testament. We've seen it with the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. We see them at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 when the Shekinah glory of God descends and fills the temple and everyone falls prostrate on their face before Him. And now the glory of God descends on these lowly shepherds out in the field at night. And how glorious must it have been that the Bible says that they were frightened, they were shaking in their pants. Right? The glory of God shone round about it. 
Here is the essence, the fullness of God's essential beauty and perfection. Shining down on these lonely men. The totality of God's beauty and essence. And their finite minds could not grasp it. And let me tell you something. I'm not knocking them. Because if the glory of the Lord filled this room, we would have great difficulty trying to understand what had just transpired. As a matter of fact, we would be equally like them, terrified, terrified in the presence of God. And yet, it doesn't end there. What happens? After the announcement, the sky is filled with heavenly hosts, and they're proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Notice that they, they proclaim glory to God. They look at God. They see God. They know the immeasurable worth of God. They value God. And they render to God what is rightly due Him. Glory, glory, glory. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy. Christ is born. God with us. Emmanuel. The Apostle John would write of the glory of Christ. In Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah would write of the glory of this Christ. In Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child, will bear a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. And Matthew quotes that in his gospel. And he adds to it, which means God with us. The disciple John would write in John 1.14, as we saw before, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we looked at Christ, when John looked at Christ, when others looked at Christ, why does Christ radiate the glories of Christ? Why? Because John tells us, because He is the only begotten of God. And He is full of grace and full of truth. John says that he and others beheld His glory. The very glory of Christ. What did they witness? What did they witness? When he says they, they beheld his glory, what did they witness? They beheld the beauty of his life. The perfection of his life. The holiness of his life. They saw beauty in the crucifixion and they saw splendor in the resurrection. They saw beauty in the mercy that he extended to the lowliest of the low and the grace that he afforded even the most vile sinner. And all of that in its totality, in its summation in Christ, warrants the blessing and the honor and the glory that is due his name. You know, the shepherds, they were out at the field at night keeping watch over their flock. They were impacted. 
They were impacted. They were impacted by that announcement that it persuaded them to go to Bethlehem and see exactly as the angels had said. But just think about this. They go to Bethlehem. They see a baby. They see a baby. They didn't know it was no ordinary baby. But apparently it was. Because Luke chapter 2 verse 20 says this of the shepherds. That the shepherds went back glorifying God. For all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. They went back glorifying God. Oh, church, we need as a people of God to get to that place in Christ where what we know, what we have experienced, and what we may have seen causes us to well up with glory and render it all. To Christ. Amen. Who were you before Christ? Who were you before Christ intercepted your life? Who were you before Christ came into your life? You know who you were. You were like me, a filthy sinner. You were like me, rebellious against God. You were like me that said, I don't want to be tethered with God. I want to do my own things. I want to do it my own way. But Christ came, and he came with authority, and he came with power, and he intercepted your life, and he redeemed your life from the pit so that you would rule and reign with him in eternity. He took you from being sinful to making you holy and in right standing before God. How is it that not every day, every minute, every hour, we're not rendering to God that which he so richly deserves? Glory to your name, glory to your name, glory to your name, God, for the work of Christ. Those shepherds were impacted. They were changed. They were shocked to the point that all they could do was glorify and praise God. I'm looking for the day in heaven when we're going to see some of those shepherds. And I'm going to walk up to them. I'm going to say, brother, can you tell me what it was like? Can you tell me what it was like? Can you tell me what it was like when the sky rolled open and you saw all those heavenly angels? Can you tell me what the glory of God looked like? Can you tell me what you felt? Can you tell me what you experienced? Can you tell me what happened when you went to and you saw that baby Jesus and how it impacted your life and it changed your life? Hey, but they weren't the only ones to have an encounter with the glory of Christ. Luke chapter 2 tells us of another man, Simeon. Another man who was in the temple. And this is the day of the presentation of the firstborn son. Jesus is presented as to the law by his parents. And he has an encounter with an old man named Simeon. He's described in Luke 2.25. It says this, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Oh, how glorious was that. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And now the Holy Spirit will show him the consolation of Israel in that little baby Jesus. And the glory 
of Christ impacts him. Look at verses 30 and through 32. This is Simeon's words now. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Oh my goodness, this old man is impacted. God told him, you're not going to close your eyes on this side of eternity until you see my Christ. And here now he sees the Christ. And what does he exclaim? My eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, prophesied for generations, embodies God's beauty and perfection. And he came into the world with an express purpose. He came into the world to change lives. He came into the world to save and seek that which was lost. And he came into this world and the scriptures resound of his glorious presence. That's why we sing of his greatness. We marvel at his wonder. We affirm his divinity. We need to stand in awe of this great Savior and this great Lord, Jesus Christ. And may we marvel like the shepherds and bask in the glory of his presence. For he is the consummation of all that is godly. And all that is perfect. You know, the Puritan writer, John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, makes this great statement. I was reading it this week. He says, No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter, who does not in the some measure behold it by faith here in this world. Let me say that again. No man shall ever behold the glory of Christ by sight hereafter. Meaning if you don't see the glory of Christ here on earth, you're not going to see it afterwards. Who does not in some measure, in some measure, not in totality, but in some measure, behold it by faith here in the world. The experience of the glory of Christ should happen in this life. And if we are believers in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, well, you may experience it in some measure, but you will experience the glories of Christ. You will get to a point where you consider your life and you consider your ways and you consider what Christ has done for you and you will consider it and not merely just intellectualize it, but you will experience the unworthiness of the salvation that Christ has provided for you. You will look at your life and you say, I am not worthy, Lord. I am the least among people. And your heart will well up with praise. And your heart will well up with glory. 
And you could be alone in your car, you could be with a group of other people, you could be in church, you could be in a prayer meeting, you could be on Bible study, you could be in your own private Bible study, when one time you'll close that Bible and you'll cry out and say, God, you are glorious, God, you are magnificent, I thank you for the Christ, I thank you, Lord, for Jesus, I thank you for his perfect sacrifice. And I'll tell you what, over here it may be temporal. You may get shifted into thinking about something. But the destiny of every believer is that we're going to behold the glory of Christ and we are going to worship in the glory of Christ and we're going to praise the glory of Christ for eternity and eternity and eternity and eternity. But it belongs to the believer. not to the unbeliever. Which is why it becomes even more important. What becomes more important is this. Have you given your heart to Christ? That's what becomes more important. What becomes more important, have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from your sinfulness and your disobedience and rebellion and called unto Christ and said, Christ, save me lest I die. Save me lest I die. Don't be in the crowd. Don't be the one walking on the Broadway. You know, the people on the Broadway, you know, the Broadway that leads to destruction, you know what the people on the Broadway are saying? Oh, come over here, man. It's a lot more comfortable over here. Come this way. Hey, it's a lot more comfortable. Hey, Come this way. Look, it's all smooth. It's wide. We got a lot of people here. We're having a good time while others are walking the narrow path and the windy path and, and working their way and being afflicted and being tempted on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And what we have going on today is people on the Broadway yelling, come over, come over, come over. This is the way to heaven. Amen. And it's a lie. And we have all the answers that your religion can't answer. This is the way to heaven. Come over here. Come over here. And it's a lie. And the best thing about a good liar is a good liar is a seducer. Because they're led by demonic spirits. Designed to seduce. Designed to take advantage of your vulnerabilities. And say, come this way. Come this way. Come this way. And the most important thing for anybody here and anybody listening to this message is, have you repented of your sins? Have you by faith put your faith and trust in the only person who can save you, Jesus Christ? Do you know that you are saved? Does your life reflect godliness and righteousness? Because I'll tell you, I've met many people from so many different religions and I've met people who call themselves Christians who'll say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but the last thing their life represents is godliness and righteousness. The Word of God tells us this in Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. It says this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe on your heart that God raised them from the dead, you shall be saved. That word saved means delivered from imminent danger. That's what it means. What's the danger? The judgment of God. And it says you shall be saved. But notice what else it goes on to say. For with the heart man believes and that belief 
results in righteousness. You see, we confess with the mouth Jesus is, is Lord. We believe on the heart. And when we believe on the heart, what happens? It results in righteousness. God's standing. Right standing with God. That's what it results in. And with the mouth, he confesses. If we're right with God, we're going to confess it out of our mouth. We can't be right with God and talk filthy. We can't be right with God and hate our brother and sister. We can't be right with God and, and, and constantly be in a state of rebelliousness against God. With the heart, he believes, and it results in righteousness, right standing with God. So as we think of the birth of Christ at this time of year, are you saved? Does your belief result in righteousness, right standing with God? If not, even as I preach, will you immediately repent and cry out to God and say, Lord, forgive me a sinner and cleanse me from my sin and save me? You don't have to tell me, but will you do it? Will you do it? Will you make sure? Will you turn from your sin and turn to Christ? If you do, you'll know the glory of Christ. You'll experience the glory of Christ. You'll experience the moment Christ comes into your life and makes you a new creation in Him. As believers, it is absolutely, absolutely essential that we come to a place not only understanding the glory of Christ, but more importantly, to the realization and the experience of the glories of Christ. And at this time of year, as we celebrate our Lord's first coming, believers must recognize, know, and rejoice in the glory of Christ. Now let me tell you something, okay? What's going to happen is, you want to do that, right? But the culture is going to press in on you. The culture is going to press in on you. And you're going to, our culture is so anti-Christ. I hope you recognize this, please. There's nothing good about our culture. It is anti-Christ. It is under the prince of the power of the air. That is biblical truth 101. And we fight against that. How can you fight against that? By staying focused on the glories of of Christ. What Christ has achieved and what Christ is coming to achieve. Now what is the significance of all of this? What's the significance of the glory of Christ? Turn, into your, turn in your Bible to John 17, verse 24. John 17, 24. John 17, 24. These are the words of Jesus. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that I may 
they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Now this above verse is from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John's chapter 17, right before he goes to the cross. And I want you to notice that Christ desires, he desires his followers to behold his glory, to behold his glory from the Father. Of this glory, the writer of Hebrews says this, of the glory of, of Christ, the writer of Hebrews writes these words, Hebrews 1, 3. And he, speaking of Christ, and he is the radiance of his glory. And so he's talking about that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, right? And the exact representation of his nature, of God's nature, and upholds all things by the words of his power. And when he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now I want to point out two words to you there. Number one, radius, radiance. It means brightness. It means shining. So look what he said. He, Christ, is the radiance of his glory. He is the brightness. He is the shining of God's glory. And he said, and he's the exact representation of his nature. The word nature means substance. It means essence. So look what he writes of the glory of Christ. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of, of on high. And the writer of Hebrews gives a beautiful description, a beautiful description of Christ's glory. A.W. Tozer says this, Those who have truly seen Christ in his glory have eyes for nothing else. Nothing else will satisfy. And I think, brothers and sisters out there, those of you who have been truly redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you know and you will testify. You'll testify with me. You'll testify with others that since coming to Christ, there's nothing, there's nothing that satisfies. Believers should always be focused on the glory of Christ and experience the glory of Christ. And yet in this time of year, the glory of Christ is replaced by cheap gimmickry and nonsense. And what they call is the celebration at this time of year that Jesus is the reason for the season and Jesus has not been the reason for any of this season. Can I tell you a pet peeve? Can I share with you a pet peeve? You know what's a pet peeve of mine? When somebody says to me, season's greetings. I go, season's greetings? I'm not a druid. I don't celebrate winter solstice and summer solstice. I'm not a pagan. And so when somebody else says, happy holiday, and I say, what holiday are you referring to specifically? This is just the culture's way to get away from recognizing what was done. We know Christ didn't, was not born on December 25th, but this is just the way of the culture to, to
to, to sugarcoat and flower it, right? We don't want to offend anybody. But there's only one reason. It's that God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, that Christ came to fulfill the plan of God, that He was the one in Genesis 3.15 that is going to stomp the head of the serpent, and in the process He's going to get bruised. But all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise belongs to God and God alone. Look at the world. Look at the world today. Come on now. Look at the world today. Do you not see the Bible being fulfilled day by day as each day of this world passes? You think this is coincidence? It's almost like somebody read the book and said, okay, I'm going to orchestrate the play this way. Jesus is coming, folks. He's coming, and he's coming sooner than we may think. And he's coming for those that are ready. And as I said a million times before, he's not coming for a soiled church. He's not coming for a dirty church. He's not coming for a sinful church. Jesus is coming for a pure and holy bride. And we, as his people, should have an expectation in our hearts to the point that we should be saying, Come, Lord Jesus. Come right now. Come at this very second. Lord, come. Show the whole world your full glory. That's what we need to be thinking about at this time of year. Listen, the scriptures hold within them the complete account of Christ's glory. And it's only through faith that we will genuinely witness the fullness of Christ's glory. But here's the issue. The unbeliever cannot behold the glory of Christ. Let me say that again. The unbeliever, the one who deep down in their heart has never come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, to think the things of the glory of Christ is foolishness to them. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, speaking of the unbelievers in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Whoa. The God of this world. Who's the God of this world? It's the devil. It's Satan. And what does he do? He blinds the mind. He blinds the mind. That they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Right there. And you know what? Many of these people sit in churches. They know nothing of the glory of Christ. Salvation has been relegated to a decision. Their life has not been changed. They haven't been transformed. But they intellectually agree with the principles of the gospel. But they know nothing of the glory of God. But the believer, notice what Paul says of the believer, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God took us from the darkness, broke through with his penetrating glorious light, 
extended his grace and mercy, called unto us, we responded by faith, we were saved and birthed in our hearts the glory of Christ so that we can behold him. Church, as we approach our celebration of our Lord Jesus Christ for his first coming, listen, let us consciously remove, let's consciously remove all of the false exterior cultural stuff and replace it with the fullness of the glory of God. Decorate your heart with the glory of Christ. Decorate your mind with the glory of Christ. Decorate your actions, decorate your deeds with the one who alone is worthy to receive glory and honor. We talked about glorifying means ascribing weight, or another way to say it is valuing, valuing, and it's a deep value. It's not a cheap value. A penny is a cheap value. You drop a penny on the floor, you don't care about it. But if you had 50 bricks of gold and you lost them, you would be quite concerned about that, right? It has deep value. We need to put our beliefs and our practices into that, into valuing Jesus Christ more than anything else that the world has to offer. More than anything that the world has to offer. For he deserves that. He is worthy of that. So I pray... My prayer is that we would have an experience like the shepherds, like Simeon, like Anna the prophetess. We didn't even talk about Anna. And that we can say with the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church at Ephesus, in Ephesus 3, 14 through 17, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You know what's the coolest thing? Is that one day we're going to be like him. Listen to the Apostle John, 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. Beloved, now we are the children of God is not yet appeared what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Where's your hope? Is it fixed on Christ? Is it fixed on Christ? Not only those who have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will behold Him, but believers will be like Him. Man, I can't even fathom what that means. But we will be like Him. Believers will share in His glory. Revelation 19.11, And I saw the heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat upon his cold faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Revelation 19, 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, 
We're following him on white horses. We will be like him. We will share in that glory. We will stand with the Lord. And the things that have tormented us on the earth, the things that have brought us problems in the earth, will be all gone. And we will not know of them any longer. But we will still be in awe and adoration of Christ. And we will remain in awe and adoration of Christ throughout all eternity. We will be like Him. We will reign with Him. We will bring glory with Him. Along with every other tribe, every other nation, every other tongue, every other culture that has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and have been born again, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, we will worship, praise, magnify, and glorify our glorious God and our glorious Christ forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's why we make a big deal about the glory of Christ. Listen, as we celebrate this Advent season, there's one question that needs to be answered. Do you have your hope fixed on Christ? Do you desire Him? Honestly, do you love him? See, when push comes to shove, that's it. A lot of people can say they love somebody when in actuality they don't. But where the rubber meets the road is, do you love Christ? Because if you love him, you'll desire him. And I'll tell you, a lack of desire for Christ is indicative of a lack of love for Christ. What type of individual, what type of person do you want to be? I encourage you to come to Christ. I encourage you to lay it all down. We can continue going on acting and listening to the voices of the world. Or we could say, you know what? None of that stuff matters to me anymore. I want Jesus and I want him alone. That's it. The world may hate me. And it will, by the way. It will. The world may hate me. It may despise me. I may become unpopular. I may lose my friend. Maybe you'll lose your job. I don't know. That happens every day. but you'll have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And you'll share in the glories of Christ. And you shall see him as he is. And you shall be like him. I don't know what can be better. There's no gift under the tree. There's no meal that could be better than that. Join with me in prayer.